I have felt the other regardless of the situation. So it doesn't matter if you take me here, there, or there, I'm always the other. So in accepting those contradictions, was I able to really be gentle with myself? Because in my head, it was always looking for validation and looking for love from other people. Welcome to another episode of Love and Citizenship. I've had to re-record this three times because all three of my dogs are sharing my room with me. And this this has been a struggle to get down to, but I hope you're well. I hope your loved ones are well, that you're navigating these weird and uncertain times with positivity and you're seeing the light at the end of this never-ending tunnel of a pandemic. This episode, the one today, it holds a very special place for me because it is perhaps one of the only episodes this season that I've had to sit down after and hold a space for myself. Usually when I do these recordings, when I have a guest on, there's a check-in before, but a little debrief after the recording to make sure that they're okay and just hold a space for them. But the conversation today got so close to my own experience and invited me to embrace my own vulnerability with a lot of these experiences that we talk about that even sitting down to edit it got me to really reflect and think about my own experiences as a person of color. And that is the core of what this episode is. It is two people of color sharing their experiences and reflecting on the color of their skin and finding meaning in the very journey that allowed us an insight into our otherness. And usually when I'm doing these intros, I'm trying to capture, or my aim at the very least is to capture what the essence of the episode is. And sometimes it's my introduction to the guest and how I feel about them, but there's never enough ways that I can truly capture how dear Aisha is to me because we met through the Dublin Story Slam. So she's a fellow creative to begin with. And Aisha for me has always been somebody that really allowed me the opportunity to embrace my otherness. There's a whole load of those questions of the self and how we frame those and Oh, this conversation, I'm, I'm super excited to share these with you. And I know, and I know that's, that's me saying it every single time, but these, these conversations, I love them. So I hope you get something out of it. It is at points quite heavy. So as you're listening to this episode, I want you to be mindful of that. And if you need to, then please, by all means, just take a break and hold that space for yourself, because this does in many ways, especially if you identify as a person of color or as somebody who's felt like the other, there might be bits in this conversation that might be triggering. So I just want you to be aware of that and hold that space for yourself. But without further wait, my lovely, my dear, dearest friend, Aisha. First and foremost, Pran, thank you so much for having me. And I am so grateful to be a part of this amazing, amazing journey and project with you. My name is Aisha. I am originally from Pakistan. But I left Pakistan at a very tender age and have lived in quite a few places. I'm fortunate enough to have had those experiences. Pran and I, we, we met in Dublin, I think 2019. Yes, 2019 at Dublin Story Slam, which is a beautiful, beautiful community of storytellers. And I just, I guess I, I gravitated towards you because of the fact that I... I was fascinated by your story and the fact that I was like, this seems like a kindred spirit. And look at where we are today. <laughs> I do. I know I mentioned this to you the last time we were talking, but 
<laughs> the first time. So so Aisha and I met at a storytelling night that we weren't telling the stories at. We were judging that night. And we exchanged emails and reached out. And then we figured like, okay, this is when we'll get coffee. And I was so reluctant to get this coffee because I'm, <laughs> I'm very like introverted to begin with. And then I was like, oh my God, I don't know what this person wants. I don't know what's happening. I have never been more grateful for being so completely wrong because like that conversation didn't feel like, I don't know, like a transactional, like networking event. It just felt like, oh, look at this. Pran, you were so completely wrong about this. <laughs> it happens, but I completely agree. So I, I, I will say that there was a bit of, I normally would hesitate before I would approach people. But when I do approach people, I'm very specific. But there was just this, this, I, I'm, I'm trying to pinpoint, but there was this curiosity. Mm -hmm. And then I saw you in person. I said, he has very kind eyes. And I, I saw the way you were interacting and you were talking to people. And I said, you know what? Yes, Aisha, go up to him. And I know I introduced myself all bubbly. Like, yes. hi, my name is Aisha. And you're yeah. like, whoa, lots of energy. <laughs> um, said, hey, I'd love to like meet up for a coffee just to see like what you're thinking with the story slam. And you emailed me that night um, on, on the way back. And I was like, okay. And then that coffee and it's, I, I will, I will say I was, I wouldn't say I was reluctant, but I was nervous mm -hmm. because it's, you never know how the other person will reciprocate. You yeah. never know what the other person would want. But I remember it was in the book upstairs. Yes. And that is one of my favorite coffee shops and bookshops in Dublin. Mm -hmm. And we just sat there and we had a very, very, beautiful natural conversation it was yeah. like okay i like this and yeah. i think that's how how we set the pattern of our friendship again never been more glad to be so wrong about like why am i going on this coffee so tell tell us a bit more i know you said that you've moved countries you've lived in a couple of places just to kind of set the platform on like a lot of our discussions today because they do focus a lot on like the notions of self our own individual journeys as people of color and identities. And like, obviously this wouldn't be called love and citizenship if it wasn't about people with like their experiences of self. But uh, so yeah, tell us, tell us more about yourself. You moved from Pakistan at a very young age. So tell, what, take us through that journey. So I was born in Karachi, Pakistan. Uh, mm -hmm. It's in the South. It's a port city. And my family is originally from near Lahore. And I was the only one of the, of the kids that was born in Karachi. Mm -hmm. And my father got the opportunity to move abroad. And so we moved to Switzerland at the age of nine. Before that, we had spent about a year and a half in London when I was about six years old. Mm -hmm. Came back to Pakistan, stayed there for a couple of years. And then I left when I was nine years old and moved to Geneva, Switzerland. And Geneva has been home turf since then. Okay. I left Geneva when I was about 19 years old to go to university into the U.S., mm -hmm. I was in Boston. I was there for a couple of years. My brothers were there as well. So I was living with my brothers as well, which is a whole different story in its own. Imagine a younger living with two brothers, older brothers too, yeah. and eventually came back to Geneva, worked here for a little while, and then decided that I wanted to do my master's. And then I went off, started a program in Spain, actually, in Barcelona, mm -hmm. left that mm -hmm. after a month, moved to London, mm -hmm. lived in London for about a year. And then after finishing that, I 
got the opportunity to move to Dublin temporarily though. So for me, it was always, um, Hey, I'll be here for six months. I think it's five and a half years and counting. I was like, okay, those six months keep extending, keep extending. And then at some point I just had to accept the fact that, Hey, Dublin doesn't want to let me go. And Mm -hmm. I can tell you every time I have thought about leaving Dublin, something has kept me. So Dublin is home at the moment. And there have been physical disruptions from place to place. And each different place has a, is basically like its own little world with its mm-hmm. own different contradictions and complexities and, mm-hmm. you know, thriving. And it's, it's just every, it's like a living, breathing thing. Each one of those locations and those places for me. I used to think that living in a place like after a while, I would tire of it. Mm-hmm. But then Dublin really changed that perspective for me in the sense where I was like, hey, maybe I'm not tiring from it. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm running away from it. Um, and I'm like, oh, what am I running away from? I've never been a good runner. So like, it's just staying put has given time to really reflect on those aggressive changes, physical mm-hmm. changes that have happened. And normally they were always circumstantial. Dublin was the only move that was by choice. That was the first time where I said, I am going to move. Mm -hmm. So it's, the cycles have been aggressive. The cycles have been very much felt like unfinished business and quick in a rush. But now there's a period of like, okay, this is where I am today. For, For somebody, and this is what I find so fascinating and like something I almost like, not, not obviously to that same extent. And like, even you could, you could have had like very similar experiences and yet not have taken the same things away from them. But like, I've moved my fair amount as well. What I'm curious to know, I suppose for you is what is a home for you? And like, how has moving so frequently from all these different places? Because each is equally different. So like, what has that experience been like for you? So I think that's probably one of the most difficult questions that I'm asked, right? Mm -hmm. Because what is home? And every single time I was asked that question, I'd always be like, what is home? Right? Because I had never quite gotten a grasp of what my definition of home was. And then I had to really sit with it and be like, I have never stayed in a place Mm -hmm. long enough to understand whether it is home or not, if that makes sense, or if it aligns with what my definition of home is. Then a part of me also thinks that I was looking for a home or looking for traces of home or pieces of home in these different places. And it wasn't necessarily that one specific place would encapsulate the entire definition of home. For me, ultimately, what I realized that home is always a specific time and a specific place. And with time, I realized that it was always the people. When I say it was a time and place, I have never, ever been someone who will look back at something and be like, I really miss my apartment in Boston. Mm -hmm. I really miss college days. I know that I live those experiences to my full capacity because that is who I am as a person. What you see is what you get. I'm full on. So it's never the time or the place. It was always the people. Mm -hmm. Because as long as I carried those people with me from place to place, Mm -hmm. I had the courage to build a home within to be able to 
have that home spill into where I am today. It, it's the emotional attachment, I think, that makes something home. And I, I mean, the, not to judge anybody who does feel this way, but even for me, I find it very difficult to get emotionally attached to phys- physical things, spaces or objects. It's almost always the connections I've made in that process that put my foundation down in a place, which is often the hardest thing to come around when like the time to move comes because you're like, fuck it. Yeah, I'll take my things. I'll take my bed sheets and my tech and my laptop. But like the one thing that I can take with me are the people that I've met in this time and in this place. So the only physical aspect of home for me is my memory box. Because it is a culmination of all the places and it's the randomest things, right? So it Mm -hmm. could be like a music festival that I went to. It could be a walk that I took on a Sunday where I was just in my head, missing home, whatever home that could be, and picked up a shell at a beach in Dublin. I'll put that in my memory box and obviously I'll sift through it. But that is my most prized possession because it is remnants and memories of people that I can actually take with me. Now, probably losing my memory box will be the most tragic thing in my life, but it's it's very much as you said, it is the it's the memories, it's the emotional attachment. And home doesn't necessarily have to be singular. <laughs> when people ask me, I'm like, "Yeah, I'm going back home." And they're like, "Which home?" And I almost chuckle because what is home? And I'm like, "Home home." And they're like, okay, Pakistan. Mm -hmm. And then I'm like, home as in my parents' home, but it's still home. So there's different definitions of home as well, because Pakistan feels like home, Mm -hmm. but it also doesn't. Geneva feels like home, but it also doesn't. Dublin feels like home because that's where I am now. So I think home cannot just be limited to one specific location. I like the the way you put it off. It It feels like home. But it also doesn't because I'm at my parents' home now and I still call it my parents' home. I don't call it my home because I was so young when I left. But I wonder, and I don't know the answer to this, maybe listen to season 21 of Love and Citizenship and you'll find out. But like, (laughs) I don't know the answer to it yet, but I would think and I would hope I would because I'm sick and tired of running and like being like, I like to use the word vagabond. But so I, I, I'm sick of feeling like a vagabond of like having to pack my stuff almost every other year and moving or if not every other year. It's almost worse if it's not every other year, because if it's like any extended period of time, say five or six years, you get comfortable. And the moment you get comfortable, well, fuck off. Off you go <laughs> to 100%. the next corner. Yeah. And I will say, and, and I guess this is a question I want to ask you, does it get harder as you settle into your life? I don't want to say as you get older. Mm hmm. But as you settle into yourself and your life, I think it's almost easier to leave now because it's all intentional. I didn't have to leave Dublin. I wanted to in pursuit of a life that I want to build for myself. So as heartbreaking as leaving has been, there's something good coming for me personally, be that personal growth, be that career opportunities, be that the ability to creatively do this. I was very intentional for why I was leaving Dublin. There's also the thing of I wasn't quite at home in Dublin. There's been very few places. There's been moments, again, there's been moments and people in my life that made it home. But then when those people left, it almost was like, okay, maybe it's time for me to go now as well. So it it does get easier because 
the last two times that I've had to move has been very intentional of like, okay, this is with intention. There's a purpose at this. And I've stuck to the purpose and it's made it easier. But I find the older I get, the more like intimate and mature my emotional attachment and connections to people are. And leaving all of that, leaving a community that I've built around myself and being part of a community that has accepted me at the same time is hard because it almost hits the reset switch on where you go to a different place. You almost have to start from scratch. There's thrill to it. There's the opportunity to maybe rediscover yourself. And I found that, but it's like, there's, there's people in my life. I know I'll never find another off and there's such beauty to it. But also why do you have to be like 3000 miles away? Story of my life. I know cliche, Mm -hmm. but I completely, completely, completely can relate to that. There is a certain heartbreak with knowing that no matter where you're going next, you're leaving someone you love. Yeah. That while you're in one place with someone you love, there's always another place where there's someone you love. Mm-hmm. And that that is a completely different type of a heartbreak yeah. because you leave a part of yourself. Mm-hmm. with certain people but I also realized that as hard as it is to get up and go I think intention is the most important differentiator yeah. when you know that this is something that I am choosing mm-hmm. there is almost this reassurance there's almost this invisible strength that you have that okay no matter what the path ahead has in store for me mm-hmm. I'm going to own it yeah. I'm going to own it so I, I know that it gets easier as well as you said before yeah. but it also gets harder because you really you know just getting up and going as you said getting inside your comfort zone moving in itself having to pack everything up it's mm-hmm. exhausting oh, it, it takes time to recover I have found that the more I've m- moved like the more places I've experienced, the more comfortable I've gotten in like my own vibe and style. Maybe it is the experience for everybody. But like for me, almost moving made it a catalyst of like I'd go to a new place. I didn't know anybody. So I could accept and like enable myself to wholeheartedly accept who I was, be that the way I dress, be that the way I style myself. And so it's almost made me more comfortable in my vibe and my style to this point where I couldn't give a shit. Like I'm wearing pajamas right now. Love it. So what has, has that been the experience for you as well? If not, that's, yeah, like what, what has been it like for you? So um, I, I guess this ties into, this is a nice, you know, segue into, into the conversation of identity, right? Mm-hmm. Because I was reading something last week about like indicators of who you are and your identity. And one of them was what you wear and how you carry yourself. It has been tough because people have always seen it as how does your individuality express itself, right? Mm -hmm. I could be in Geneva and I will dress a certain way because that's just how I am. But I could be in Dublin and dress a completely different way, whereas I would dress even in the U.S. And it's not necessarily something that is conscious. It's just something that I would be more comfortable in. While those things change so much so that people will also say that uh, when you're in Ireland, you will say certain things a certain way. I completely don't pick up on those things. Mm -hmm. 
when I'm in Geneva or when I'm speaking to my parents, I roll my R's, yeah. you know, or and my body language will be able to tell someone that I'm speaking to my parents. Those things don't are not noticeable to me, but they are noticeable to other people. Mm-hmm. But I will definitely say that I have gotten more comfortable in those contradictions, those different layers of my identity and owning them as and when I see fit. Mm-hmm. But accepting that overall in the sense that if I'm in a specific place, most likely you will see me in a pair of runners, a t-shirt, jeans, or sweatpants with my glasses and my hair tied up. Mm-hmm. That's the staple look. I am a lot more comfortable in myself after living in different places. It's had those challenges as well. Don't get me wrong, because in all the places that I've lived, there's a very different concept of what is acceptable Mm -hmm. in terms of body image, in terms of physique, in terms of style. And navigating that can be tough and it can be psychologically draining as well. I'm, I'm glad we segued into identities because it's almost hard not to kind of talk about the identities when, you've all, when we've already touched on like the experience of moving and what a home is. And what I'm curious then is, and I'll, I'll, I'll do a little deep, like introduction to how I'm coming at it, is I have had the experience of growing up in India as a person of color. So I saw other people of color around me, maybe more. My only other experience to that is Montreal and Ireland. And Montreal was very like multicultural and diverse, but the countryside that I was living in maybe wasn't. And then coming to Dublin, which is for all its cosmopolitanness, not nearly as, I suppose, diverse as I'd want it to be. I had a friend who once asked me if like, so what has your experience been like as a person of color in Dublin? And I said to basically encapsulate it, the only other person or the only other brown person that I often see in a week is the person I see in the mirror, because that has been my experience of it. And I know many people have it very different, but like my class, my workspace, my social circles as well. I was often, if not the only brown person, one of three, which isn't all that much. So the, 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 the experience of growing up in India as a person of color, obviously instilling me the idea of what it meant to be brown based on obviously the implicit and explicit cultural norms that were pushed down my throat. But in leaving, I also had this Indianness that I carried with me all the way through the good of which I've learned to accept and take with me in pride, but the things that I didn't see fitting for me, I had to leave behind. And I've very intentionally done that. What has it been like for you growing as a person of color, especially when you left Pakistan at such a young age, but also having moved, say, after living in Geneva for so long for college in the States, or say, then moving to London and then moving to Dublin? It's a loaded question, so I apologize, but like, I'm just so curious. To put it lightly, it was tough as fuck, man. <laughs> like, I left when I was nine yeah. to come live in Geneva. I went to an international school here. Mm-hmm. So you come into this world where you have peers from all walks of life. 
from Geneva, you know, I had the exposure, very, very international exposure. So we had people from all countries, all races, all religions in one classroom. So there was never, I knew that I looked like some people. I knew I didn't look like some people, but there was never so much of an isolation of this is, I am a person of color. Mm -hmm. And I think that might've been naive, but because this was during my transformational years, that has been my outlook of the world is it is very multicultural that I am not going to focus on certain aspects of religion, of culture, and, and just narrow down on those. Because for me, it was completely normal to go over to my Zimbabwean friend's house and have food there. Or it could be, it's very, very common that we'd be celebrating Thanksgiving. They were all aspects of religions, cultures, and nationalities that were celebrated in the international school. And that is something that I'm very grateful for yeah. because I know that is a privilege in itself, but it was still conflicting because there was a culture at school, which is international. And there was a culture at home, which is we are Pakistanis, yeah. we are Muslims. So while I'm living and navigating as a, a preteen in a world where I have so many different possibilities, boys, what are boys? Dave? What? Oh, wait. Okay. And I should start putting berets in my hair, like navigating all those things, but then coming home and putting them, leaving them all at the door, because I don't know how that will work at home. Mm -hmm. I don't know how, if that is accepted, but there's a big part of me that tells me that this is not okay. Yeah. So there was this clash of cultures of a person, the person I am at home and the person that I am outside of the house. And then, you know, we use that as a springboard to go into college where it's like, okay, start from scratch. Freedom. By freedom, I mean, I'm making my own decisions. I'm deciding. I'm like, so just to give you an example, in high school or even growing up, I grew up in a household where my dad was a patriarch. So for example, we always had to remember that we're Muslims. We're conservative. Their culture, our culture, even though their culture is a culmination of all the different cultures, whether it's American, whether it's, you know, my Canadian friend, depending on what is in question, it's their culture and our culture. Mm -hmm. If I want to go to a friend's birthday, I'm like, yeah, cool. I'll see you there. But I remember being sh like scared shitless to ask my dad yeah. because it was the ultimate decision always would lie with him. And if he said no, I would not know how to communicate that to my friends because they had no way of understanding what it took. Yeah. The plucking up the courage to go ask him, finding the voice to be able to be like, hey, dad, I want to go to this and him saying no. And now thinking in my head, how am I going to communicate this to my friend? And then having the label of being someone who does not show up, a friend who is flaky, something that stuck with me. And then going into university and having this freedom to be like, okay, I can go anywhere I want. Okay, let's experiment. Let's do this. But in a place like Boston, in a place like the U.S., especially Boston, it was a complete shift because everything was dominated by race, mm -hmm. which for me was so shocking because it's like, okay, I see people for people. And I know that's controversial because people are like, if you say you don't see color, you know, that's the problem. And I have to really engage in dialogue to be like, hey, okay, let me go deeper into this because it's about my experiences. Let me give you the context behind it. But in the U.S., it was very much so race dominated and 
I was taken in by the African-American community or the mm-hmm. Latino community or the exchange students, yeah. because those were the communities that understood the different nuances of being someone who has multiple identities. And then obviously London was completely different. So each of these places had sparked different aspects of my identity. So I think Geneva was more of like the testing ground. Mm-hmm. America was more, okay, let's try everything and everything, but it made me more conscious of race. London, I tap into, I would say, more of my Muslim and Pakistani side because there's a big community there. Whereas in Geneva, there was never one. In Boston, there was less so. And then when I came to Dublin, it's like, okay, I have sense of community okay i have because like you said i was the only brown person in my workspace which had its own set of like questions and for me that was shocking because my experience of being a person of color mm-hmm. initially was through other people was it it was through injustices or experiences that my siblings faced yeah. that my parents faced and i'm that is a massive massive privilege because a, I'm a female, so maybe I have it slightly easier because men that are people of, of color would probably have a tougher time. So I know that my brothers have a lot more stories, and so does my dad. My mom, who visibly covers her head, has had experiences as well. But I have been fortunate enough to not have had such explicit experiences, which have been like, hey, I'm a person of color. That I genuinely noticed starting London and Dublin when I couldn't recognize, I couldn't see the faces of people who look like me. Mm-hmm. I couldn't see myself in people. That was really, really tough. The otherness in women is often eroticized and fetishized. And the otherness in men is always attacked and vilified. And I have held that for so long because that has truly been my experience as well. But to, to kind of dig deeper into, and I'm, I am, I, I, this needs to be said, not because we're both people of color, but also I am really sorry that you had to experience all of that. There's a lot of good that comes with diversity, but there is also a lot of, well, not so good as putting it very mildly, but there's, there's a lot of shit about being the other in a culture or in a dynamic that, that, that really tears in parts of you how has all this the the culture at home being different from the culture that you saw outside of home the 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 information or informing the self based on your peers or the people that you saw around you how has that shaped your notion of self and i know that's again not a very clear answer but i'm curious to see where you're at at that stage or where you're at in that experience so i I do want to point out that with all these changes of living mm-hmm. in different places, I identified something within myself, which was that I was always trying to fit in. Mm-hmm. Always. Okay, I'm in America now. New people, maybe I'll be accepted. Maybe they'll like me. So I had a big capacity to please people mm-hmm. or be able to provide to people because my need to be accepted was so great and I was tired I was I was very very tired because 
there were so many different aspects to me. And you know how you were talking about being the other in a situation? I have felt the other regardless of, of, of the situation. So it doesn't matter if you take me here, there, or there, I'm always the other. Mm-hmm. And I had to really, really, really sit down with myself and start addressing certain aspects and things that I was doing and accepting those contradictions that I had with myself, that it doesn't have to be either or, you know, I can be Pakistani and mm-hmm. make certain decisions that are quote unquote, not Pakistani. I can be Pakistani and I can wear whatever I want. I can be Swiss and not like cheese, but I do like cheese, right? I can be Irish and hate the weather, which I do. So in accepting those contradictions, was I able to really be gentle with myself? Because in my head, it was always looking for validation and looking for love Mm -hmm. from other people whether it was in friendships, whether it was in relationships. And I wanted someone to see me for me. I wanted someone to hear me, but I did not know what to say. And I found that no one asked me. And when they did, I did not know what to say. So it really took me having to take a step back over the past two to three years, taking a step back to look at, hey, we think that we want to fit on on the spectrum, right? So if we're talking about the spectrum of identity, first and foremost, it's not as short as we think it is because there's so many, you can be at one specific point and change at a specific point. It's not something that is permanent. You're not at a fixed point on the spectrum, but it's also accepting that we have to create our points on the spectrum. That I can be this and I can be that. And I don't have to like all aspects of my identity. There's so many things about being a female that sometimes I'm like, okay, I don't like this aspect of being a female. I don't like this aspect of being a Pakistani. I don't like this aspect of being a creative, right? It's not necessarily just the traditional definitions of identity, but what I was owning and what I was using as my identity, I had to sit with and really go through it and accept that, okay, I will challenge these aspects of it. I will challenge them and I will ask myself, am I okay to move forward with this identity? So I think in every person's life, there comes a point where you have to challenge mm-hmm. the labels that you were given yes. and ask yourself, what sits well with me? And I think this could be the just hitting your 30s where you ask, what am I going to take forward? And what am I going to leave behind? And associating with a specific identity is going to be exhausting, mm-hmm. but there are going to be days where I'm going to celebrate it. Yeah. And... It's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful chaos underneath. But once you filter it down, it just makes things easier.
I'm not sure if you've heard of Tai Selassie. She did a TED talk on don't ask where I'm from, ask me where I'm a local. And it was a really beautiful approach to identity. And she basically came up with this model of like the three R's, which is rituals, relationships, and restrictions. And if you want to ground yourself and try to explore your identity, ask yourself like, what rituals do you practice? If I'm in Dublin, what am I doing? Am I making Pakistani food? Yeah, I will make Pakistani food at least once a week. Am I praying on Fridays? Yeah, because I choose to pray on Fridays because Fridays is my special day that I pray for myself. I put on my traditional clothes. I do all those things that I need to to connect with a higher power. Mm -hmm. Relationships, who are the people that I'm spending time with? Who are the people that I speak to at least once a week? Those define who you are. That defines who you are. And the last thing is restrictions, which is more the concept of nationality. Where can I go? Like mobility. Does my identity, so for example, if I'm a Muslim, does that mean that I cannot be in the company of men? Or should I not be drinking? And then you can basically workshop what aspects fit in where you can stretch. You can still be that and also expand on it and being like, okay, I'm Muslim, but I want to implement certain Buddhist practices. I want to implement yoga in my daily routine because that is what I need in my life. And that fits in nicely with my identity. And I thought that was beautiful because it's not just limited to where my parents are from or what passport I hold, Mm -hmm. but it's where I've been a local. And it could be, I still wear my Boston hat, whether I'm in Ireland, Geneva or Pakistan, because I was a local there. And that just because I was a local there doesn't mean that that does not still resonate with me today. No, no single like statement even statements that I've written or said could truly capture what I've been aiming to get out with the whole idea of a citizenship here, because love is easier to define. I think we all have a baseline idea of love, but it's so interesting. You introduce young because I've been, <laughs> because of the masters that I'm segueing into now, it's, it's, it's so bizarre how neatly this ties into what we've talked about for the last like 45 minutes, which is young said the world will ask you who you are. And if you do not know, the world will tell you. And that is a gut punch in a way of like, fuck me, because that has been, that has been such an experience for me where, and I I introduced this element with intention because it then allows me to ask the question that I will ask following this. I didn't have a scale for my otherness. I had no conception of my otherness. I had a theoretical conception of like, oh yeah, I will be the other race in a predominantly white neighborhood or like in a white country. But by virtue of even, say, growing up in my city or being in my boarding school, I was just one brown kid among so many other brown kids. And then in moving to Canada, the school was very international, even the time when I was on the exchange, but more so when I was there as the intern, where because of such an international environment, I wasn't the only other But in coming to Dublin, which was then the most fundamental shift I'd taken, I truly got the scale of my otherness where, and I, I, and I, this is specifically the experience I drew from in writing for the Abbey Theatre series that my letter featured on, where I, my first ever tram journey that I ever took in Ireland on the Lewis from Trinity Halls to city centre, I stood next to somebody and they shuffled uncomfortably. 
And when I went to sat down, somebody just put their bag up and was like, not here, mate. And it was the first time ever that in such an overt way, I was told you are the other. And that has permeated in so many different experiences. And obviously, because I like to take fun or like make fun of things, even like things as challenging as racism and like someone's being racist, I tend to conquer that or like attack that with humor in a way to almost diffuse the situation, but also like trivialize their hate where, and this is like, it stayed with me and it continues to stay with me because clearly I'm talking about it now, but like I was on a day with somebody and we were in a pub, which is like very like old man Dublin pub. And this guy just walked up to her and was like, can I get your number? Something on the lines of, oh, you look really hot. Yada, yada, yada. Can I get your number? She was like, I'm actually here with someone. And he just looked at me, like just gestured at me. It was like this brown piece of shit. I was like, whoa, that is wow. And like my reaction then was like, oh, wow. I'm sorry. That was actually very funny. Did you prepare that? Like, did you have to like study that at home? That was very witty, I have to say. And the person I was with was like, I'm sorry, that's fucked up. Like, fuck off. And as we were leaving, she, she was just like, why would you say that? Why couldn't you say anything better? I was like, what good would it do? Like, you do realize oh. I'm subjected this more frequently than I'd care to admit. Like I was chased down the road once. I used to volunteer and I was walking back home and this volunteering used to work late up at night. And I was walking back home because I love walking. And uh, in making that walk, I passed the pub and somebody just shouted at me. Was like, go back to Pakistan. I was like, mate, first off, racist. Also, not from Pakistan. Pakistan. Yeah. And like there was racism mixed with Islamophobia in that one sentence. I was like, make a decision, like commit to one thing or just don't. And he's like, yo, you think you're funny? I was like, no, but just like get your facts right. And he came after me, like he chased me and I ran and then he like, picked up the pace and I stopped, pushed him, frightened for my life and ran home. Oh. Yeah, this happened in, I like to think 2017. Yeah, this happened either in 2017 or like very early 2018. And What uh, in the absolute what? Yeah, yeah. so it's, it's, it's been weird, but... I mean, it's me learning about your experiences in Dublin was a wake up call Mm -hmm. because I used to boast about Dublin and Irish hospitality, but that's not to say that that doesn't come with its own set of issues as well. So to hear about your experiences as a person of color uh, in Dublin was shocking, Mm -hmm. but I'm not surprised. I mean, even in a city like Dublin where I've always lived on the South side, there's a clear I mean, there's a clear landmark, the river, that separates the north and the south, where mm-hmm. I know people who would not go to the north side, where I'm like, I need to go to the north side because I need to see some color, you know? Yeah. That's where all the best food is. That's mm-hmm. where all the desi shops are, you yeah. know? That's where I can go and get my dose of specific ingredients that I know I will not be able to get anywhere else. Yeah. So... I can completely, completely appreciate the experiences that you had because it is very much real. It Mm -hmm. is very, very much real. And 
that's the reason why we spoke about this earlier is for me, it was, it would be different not to say that I haven't experienced racism in Dublin, but because of the fact that I might not have the identifiers, the specific traditional identifiers of certain identities, Mm -hmm. it's almost like I get, I get a pass. In Dublin, my biggest challenge was always being approached in a way that, uh, and this started when I was in the U.S., of being labeled as exotic. And it was always, oh, are you Brazilian? And Mm -hmm. I would always, you know, I I would always humor people whenever they asked me. And that's also another thing is that when you do experience racism, one of my coping mechanisms was to brush it off or just apply my sense of humor. It was a tactic to just laugh it off, right? Same thing as as your situation at, at the pub with your date is to laugh it off. I mean, I've been called a Paki. It never bothered me. Mm-hmm. My nickname at work was Brownie. In the US, when I used to play basketball, my nickname was Quickie. And I basically always had this idea in my head, oh, it's probably because I'm quick, knowing well that I was not quick. But because of the fact that all the corner shops were owned by Pakistanis and Indians. Mm-hmm. And they're called Quickie Marts. Yeah. So that's why they called me Quickie. One of my most chilling experiences with racism was in Savannah, Georgia. I was with my partner at that time. And we were walking in the mall. And because there is this ambiguity with my appearance, mm-hmm. in that one experience, we had... African Americans come and saying, "What are you doing with that white piece of trash?" And I'm just like, "I'm not white." Okay, forget it. Then you'd have the Daisies commenting on my experience, on my appearance. Mm-hmm. Oh, look at this! She must be Daisy. Look at her commenting on my body parts. And I'm like, "Okay, fine." Then you'd have the Caucasians talking about a couple that is of color. Mm-hmm. So it's like the hat trick. And then specifically being cornered on a bus with two females who just decided to rip into me for no reason. This is the reason why we have problems because it's women like this that steal our men. Look at the way she's dressed. Uh, She's not even going to say anything because she's too chicken. He's got her right under her thumb. And Mm -hmm. my blood was like, that was my first full on experience. And that battle to be like, Am I going to respond and have this person and take and and take control of my integrity or am I going to stay quiet and validate what they think of me? And my partner at that time literally was just whispering, saying, don't worry about it. Don't worry about this. Just holding my hand and squeezing it, saying, don't worry about it, because they were playing dirty. They were going... Every possible thing that you could, and they were becoming explicit. We were waiting for the bus to leave. Mm-hmm. They're sat behind us and like, oh, she's saying something. What you got? You got to say something, bitch. And I'm just like, okay, wow. And I know people that have experienced it on heavier degrees, and it it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking because it really, really makes you start thinking. And going into a place where you believe that the world is not as beautiful as it seems. I know you said that people, you, you never got the brunt of it or like people might have it worse. But 
I, this does need to be said. Just because somebody's had it worse doesn't diminish the experience that you've had either. And I'm so, I'm so sorry that you had that because in an ideal world, our plurality as a society would be, should be celebrated because isn't it great that you're, you're coming together based on a mutual, like collective set of values and hopes and fears and belief systems that bring us together as a people, as a population, despite our plurality. But the, the ideal of what the world should be and the contrast between the, what the world really is, is heartbreaking. You and I will always know racism till our very last breaths. That's just the world we're born in and it fucking sucks. It's, a, it's, it's shit. The world for our kids needs to be better. It has to. And maybe it's the optimist in me. But when I see young kids... And I can't tell you how much joy this brings into my life where like in Dublin, I, I'd often be walking and I'd see a lady in a hijab with like a baby stroller and there'd be a little kid doing its thing, aloof as to the fucking chaos that's raging outside. It brings me hope because there will be this kid and that kid will have its own challenges growing up in a very whitewashed society. But that just means their peers, even if it means two of them, will be a bit more conscious. Just as much as you're holding space for me, when you first shared your experiences with me, mm -hmm. I carry them with me. Yeah. I don't want to say I carry the hurt or what you felt in a way that it impacts me, but I carry that with me because mm -hmm. that helps me make informed decisions about my friends of color. Right. Informed decisions about you, how I can support you, how if I experience someone doing that or having that done to them, how I can respond or react. Because it's instances like those that, you know, you said we need to leave a better the hope and the prayer is that we leave a better world for our kids. Yeah. But I also want to stress that we have to live in a better world for us to build the foundation for there to be a better because at there are times where I'm so disheartened that I'm like, why would I want to bring kids into this? Mm -hmm. And I know I'm not the only person who thinks like that. No. So that means we need to do the work now. And even that means that while we might be victims of racism, yeah. it's also important to sit with and really through our experiences, identify any biases that we may have. Yeah. It doesn't have to be just one specific thing. It has to be, am I doing this from a place where my decisions are informed or are my decisions more automatic? Yeah. I mean, if they are automatic, can I trust that decision? But it is very much, a real, I, I will say, I felt that in London a lot. I felt that in America as well. But London and Dublin are the places where I really, really felt like the other. And that can even come down to, you know, having to be the, the poster child for Islam the poster child for being Pakistani. Mm -hmm. It's exhausting feeling like you have to answer for an entire community, which has so many, so many shades to it. Yeah. And just hoping and praying that you do justice to us. And you're like, no, 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 no. I can give you my version, right? And yes, it ties into ignorance. It's like people will not know, like even with your experience, the person called you a Paki, but then also made a comment about faith. So it's like, mate, if you had 
a little bit more understanding of the situation, you could at least make sure your insults land properly. Right now you're just clutching at thin air. Like I'm in a power to be able to laugh about it, but imagine Pan, that there's someone else, another Indian man mm-hmm. who doesn't have the command of English, yeah. who is working late, has been working a double shift and feels that imagine his level of anxiety when he's confronted with something like that. Mm-hmm. We have to do better, and the only way we can do better is by making sure that we are having conversations about it openly and honestly. Dialogue is the most important thing. It is. I mean, there's a whole set of things that we could bring into this conversation. There's a whole lot more that I would want to bring in to this. Like, we could be here recording an entire, like, seven (laughs) seasons of a podcast, but... and. This, it, it, it didn't quite hit me the same way till you just said there. It's not about just making a better world for our kids. It's about making things better for other people out there like us. You know how we were talking about how like our ways that we express ourselves through the way we dress or the way we style ourselves changed through our experiences. I started dressing very differently from the day after that event happened. There is a reason I wear like big combat Timberland boots. There is a reason I started lifting more weights at the gym. There's a reason I started growing out my beard. There's a reason I started wearing leather jackets just in order to be more intimidating. So that if somebody thought we could mess with this person, you look at that and you say, okay, maybe not. And it's, it's, it's been such an interesting shift. Obviously I like staying healthy and I like exercising, but from the 18 year old me who started exercising to have abs and be like a supermodel. I have now started working out just so I can be strong and be able to defend myself. And that is a very real reason. That is my reality. I've seen that enough times. Precisely. That is your reality. And I also know that my father has given, used to give specific instructions to my brothers. Mm -hmm. Every time they grew their hair out long. Nope. We're going to the barbers. Nope. Pull your pants up. Nope. No baggy jeans. Because the lens of judgment will fall quicker and harsher on people of color. Yeah. That is, that, that is the reality. It's also so interesting when you said that you you're almost have the weight of representing your entire culture. Where like, if you do something wrong, it doesn't reflect on you. I'd be happy if it did reflect on me. But I carry with me... I carried with myself this responsibility that if I fall out of line, that if I do something that wasn't culturally appropriate, it wouldn't be a reflection of me. It would be a reflection of every other Indian person yet to be born, every other brown man yet to be born. And if, if you ever seem to forget that, there will always be a reminder. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. There will always, always be a reminder. And if you are making decisions that... You know, the world can be very unforgiving if you make decisions that are not by the book, Mm -hmm. you know, and as long as you are approaching your day with intention Mm -hmm. and with love, it's basically like having that compass. It is the compass that will be able to give you direction on even your darkest of days. But defining your compass does not have to be as complicated as we make it seem. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really the thing is 
we can really get caught up in people telling us who we are, telling us who we can love, telling us how to love, or telling us, oh, this is not love, you know, mm-hmm. or this is not what you should be doing is is background noise, but it can really be at the forefront if if we let it. This may almost seem like an oversimplification, but I think much of your life's purpose is figuring out yourself, taking everything that's being told to you, matching it up with what you've experienced for yourself, taking what adds to you, discarding what doesn't. And then once that process, which is an ongoing process, but no matter how far or what what point you're at in your life, your responsibility as your unapologetic self is to authentically openly and as comfortably as you can communicate that there is so so much that i could go into this but again like i should thank you thank you for for agreeing to do this thank you for being vulnerable thank you for sharing that with me i appreciate you for doing this and thank you thank you for coming on Pran, thank you I think I have to extend my gratitude to you because you have beautifully created this space where I have felt seen, I have felt heard, I have felt safe. And that that is a reflection of you. That is the the friendship that we have, that is, you know, the love and the trust that we have cultivated and I hope that this continues to grow and I cannot wait to see how this comes out so thank you for having me and thank you for such a beautiful conversation which could literally continue going on for hours on end but thank you so much Pan. i really really appreciate it love and citizenship is part of the writer project we have new episodes out every wednesday and you can find out more in the show notes thank you so much for listening and i'll catch you in the next one